All right, hello everyone. Welcome to this eSIP online conversation. My name is Frederick Erickson, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by author, scholar, and journalist Mark Clifford. And we are going to talk about his new book, Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere, which just has been published by St. Martin's Press. Mark has had a fascinating career. He was a journalist with the Far Eastern Economic Review, a weekly magazine that did, in my view, some of the best reporting on Asia, but that is sadly no longer around. Mark later came to uh, be the editor of, editor-in-chief of The Standard and the South China Morning Post, two English-speaking newspapers that many people with an interest in Hong Kong, China, and the wider region follow. Mark also stepped into the world of academia and did a PhD in Hong Kong history at the University of Hong Kong. And when I got to know him, he was the executive director of the Asia Business Council, a very influential business organization that can be compared with the European Roundtable of Industrialists here in Brussels. Mark is now the president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. Mark, welcome to this online conversation. Thank you so much, Frederick. A real delight to be with you. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you here um, and also to talk about your your really fascinating book. Um, there are lots of things that we're going to cover in our conversation, but I wanted us to start in the situation in Hong Kong now, today. Two years ago, almost to the day two years ago, you got an ominous email that wasn't the start, but a strong acceleration of media crackdowns in Hong Kong. And you were a non-executive director of a company that was on the receiving end of these crackdowns. The email was from Jimmy Lai, an entrepreneur and activist who had founded the media company Next Digital, which owned Apple Daily, then the most read newspaper in Hong Kong. I'm going to start by reading a passage from your book that gives a chilling account of what was going to unfold in the next days, weeks, and months. So here you write, Mark, I'm being arrested. The email came just before eight o'clock in the morning. The phone call a few minutes later, right after I got him into a taxi on the way to breakfast. Mr. Lai cannot meet you for breakfast today, his assistant, Julie Chan, told me. Something urgent has come up. I'm sorry. Goodbye. The police had arrived less than an hour before our breakfast appointment in Lai's house in a tranquil enclave on a hill above one of the most crowded places on earth, Hong Kong's Mongkok district. Lai had time to message me and a few others before being taken away. The arrest of Jimmy Lai Chijing in February 2020 marked the intensification of a more sinister approach by Hong Kong authorities. Now the legal system would be used to punish political enemies, even those who were engaging in peaceful protest, a right that is guaranteed in Hong Kong. The idea that everyone was equal before the law and that the law would not be used to punish enemies was a critical marker that separated Hong Kong from mainland China, where activists and artists, bloggers, doctors and lawyers, and disgruntled property owners alike face harassment, intimidation, arrest, jail, and even disappearance if they criticize authorities. People in Hong Kong did not have to worry about police knocking on the door and taking them away on gin-up charges, or at least they hadn't worried about that during the 156 years of British colonial rule. So, Mark, after that ominous morning, what followed? 
Yeah, well, thank you, Frederick. Uh, that brings back a lot of memories. And uh, what's happened in the last two years is just unbelievable. Uh, it was unimaginable to me at that time. By the end of that year, by December 2020, Jimmy Lai was in jail. He's been in jail ever since. Uh, he's in solitary confinement in a maximum security prison. This, by the way, is a 74-year-old devout Roman Catholic diabetic who's always preached nonviolence. And uh, I think what's happened to Jimmy Lai is a kind of bellwether for what's happened to Hong Kong. We've, uh, we've had the national security law imposed by Beijing, which essentially criminalizes all those actions that you talked about that are, that are uh, protected theoretically under Hong Kong's mini constitution, uh, the basic law. We've had the, new, the newspaper you mentioned, Apple Daily, was forced to, to shut after the government froze our bank accounts and uh, put a number of staff in jail. So along with Jimmy Lai, we have the former editor-in-chief in jail, the former chief executive officer in jail, and a number of other uh, writers and journalists in jail. So we have the Apple Daily Seven, none of whom have been uh, tried, let alone convicted on any charges, with the exception of Jimmy Lai, who, who was convicted on some civil disobedience charges. So we've got people just sitting in, we've got a newspaper shut down, we have a city which has been uh, really destroyed in terms of its freedom. And um, we, have, we have, you know, actually scores of people being held without bail on this national security law charges. The Apple Daily 7 are the ones that, you know, they were my former colleagues. So they're the ones that I'm most familiar with. But I mean, there are people in it ranging in age from 16 to, well, Jimmy Lai's 74, who are, who are sitting in jail for just doing what they had always done during the British colonial period. And during the first uh, 20 odd years of, of Chinese rule after the 1997 handover, it's a it's it's just unbelievable to think how quickly freedom can be destroyed. So what is the situation for media freedoms today then? I mean, can you can you publish critical pieces about mainland China, about mainland China's grip on power in Hong Kong these days? Or would you immediately sort of get a knock on the door? Well, um, I, I think that the answer is that besides Apple Daily closing, uh, every other uh, you know, significant pro-democracy outlet uh, online uh, or, or in print has uh, shut down. There are, so, I mean, the answer is there is no effective media freedom. I mean, nobody would dare to publish a seriously, let's say a critical article on Xi Jinping, China's leader, or an article uh, questioning uh, China's, seriously questioning China's policies in Xinjiang, where we have the largest internment of civilians since the Nazi period going on, right in more or less plain view of the world. Mm -hmm. An article uh, questioning uh, China's policies in Tibet or its ambitions to take over Taiwan. I mean, this is unthinkable to, to do in Hong Kong today, whereas just two years ago, it was uh, fairly routine to have a robust debate about um, what was happening in Hong Kong, in China, and in the world. Mm -hmm. And, and to follow, sort of asking what perhaps uh, may uh, sound as a, a few sort of stupid questions, but I think it would be helpful just to paint the picture about what the situation is like in Hong Kong today. So just a few years ago, I mean, I think we all could follow in international news that there was a febrile situation in, in Hong Kong with lots of street demonstrations and lots of, you know, thousands and thousands, even millions of people, Hong Kongers, that were supporting um, movements that were critical of, of, uh, 
Hong Kong authorities, mainland China, and of course, um, they were afraid that uh, the policy direction was going to basically end up in the situation where we are now, where the freedoms in Hong Kong was going to be destroyed. So what, what happened to all of them? I mean, are, are all these, are they all in jail now? Are, they, are, there, are there any street demonstrations these days where people are showing the, their dissatisfaction with developments? Oh, I think it's an excellent question. It's, it's um, uh, really good to try to look at where we've come from and, and where we are in Hong Kong. No, there are no street demonstrations in Hong Kong. Even single people who have gone out to demonstrate have been arrested. In fact, one of the uh, convictions that was uh, imposed on Jimmy Lai was that he, a single individual, lit a single candle at the uh, commemoration on last June 4th of uh, the Tiananmen Square killings in 1989. A protester, I guess, in his late 60s was planning uh, just a week or two ago, two weeks ago, I guess, to... Um, protest against the uh, the Olympics, the Genocide Olympics, as activists called them. He was arrested before he could even um, get out on the street, a single person. So, I mean, the crackdown is so sweeping, so severe that it's, uh, again, unimaginable really to imagine that less than two years ago, in the summer of 2019, we had, uh, we had protests and rallies with a million, even two million people out on the streets of Hong Kong. This is in a city of seven and a half million people that is not drawing on the hinterland, not drawing on protesters coming from around the country. But basically, one out of every four people, maybe more, in the city was out on the street. And now, where are they? I mean, that is a great question, Frederick. Tens of thousands, maybe over more, maybe more than 100,000 have already left, have emigrated, given up on Hong Kong, which is, I mean, it's heartbreaking. When a great city loses its people, um, you know, what does it have left? I think the Chinese figure, well, we got a lot of Chinese just send down some more mainlanders. Uh, seven and a half million people in Hong Kong is kind of a rounding error for the mainland. Other people are just, uh, well, they're dealing with a really ham-handed attempt to deal with the, the pandemic. Hong Kong had had and has largely cut itself off from the rest of the world um, with visitor arrivals down, I think, you know, 98, 99% uh, as air links have been cut and as a kind of zero COVID policy is, is imposed. Uh, unfortunately, um, and very tragically, uh, COVID uh, has proven impossible to suppress in the last couple of weeks. We've seen thousands of new cases in Hong Kong and the authorities are really scrambling to try to come to grips with it because it appears that they haven't really used the last two years very wisely in terms of building their, their healthcare system. So it's a it really, really, difficult situation with the pandemic compounding the political crackdown. I think a lot of people that, um, you know, from Europe and perhaps elsewhere in the world that uh, were interested in developments in Hong Kong, uh, they certainly followed what was going on with this young protester and leader, Joshua Wong. So do I get the feeling from your book that one of the fascinating things with many of these demonstrations is that it collected people from lots of different ages. I mean, this was not just sort of students that were on the streets protesting against their freedoms. They were sort of people that have been living in Hong Kong for a long time. And um, some were you know, pretty old. Um, you, you write about some of them in the book and they, they got out to support the freedom that they have got accustomed to uh, by living in Hong Kong. 
But still, I mean, students tend to be sort of um, the most rebellious parts of any societies. Um, and it must have been difficult during the pandemic for students to organize in a demonstration. But what, what, what is, you know, from your vantage point, what do you think is the atmosphere among these students that were you know, out organizing many of these demonstrations together with Joshua Wong a few years ago? Yeah, well, Joshua Wong is in jail and a yeah. lot of other people are in, in jail right now. As I said, you know, many of them held on um, held on charges without without trial, without bail. Again, illegal, completely illegal under the basic law that it was supposed to govern Hong Kong and guarantee its freedoms. Um, so we had over 10,000 people arrested on political charges. In fact, formal charges have only uh, been filed against about a quarter of those 2,000 odd people. Um, so I think a lot of people are just sort of living under a cloud, afraid to really do anything. Many tens of thousands, as I said, uh, have have left, uh, especially to Britain, which um, very generously um, gave the the right, very, really eased up on the right to emigrate for anybody who had a special passport that was issued during the colonial period that had not allowed them to settle in Britain before. I think a lot of people have just gone to ground. Um, uh, I think the the message from authorities is really clear. We will grind you down and we'll hold you in jail. And so, you know, there's some some few who are fighting on. I see that the uh, the student union at uh, one of the major universities has dis well, all the student unions have had to disband. But um, uh, I I see that you know some of them continue to make public statements. I just can't believe it's going to end well for them. But you know, there are a lot of people in prison who who are organizing and uh, seem to remain quite committed to the cause. So I think it's a really it's going to be very interesting to see. I speaking, I guess, as a historian who doesn't like to predict, but you know, is really fa I'm fascinated to see if what China is going to uh, nurture in the prisons is a, a generation of really committed, hardened activists, or if it's really going to be successful in just you know beating Hong Kong down and and you know kind of expelling the people who don't want to be there. I honestly don't know. I mean, in, in Ireland, obviously, during the Troubles, we saw that, that the prisons became nurtured, became a breeding ground for a new generation of, of activists. Uh, I don't know if that's the case in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong, I should add, was always very, very nonviolent in its approach to, to protests. And you mentioned older people. I mean, many of them, uh, people like Jimmy Lai, who was a an illegal immigrant into Hong Kong, a child laborer who, who smuggled himself in in a sampan at the age of 12. I mean, these people know what communism is like and what the Chinese Communist Party can do. The the thing I think that enraged and still does uh, trouble the, the Chinese, the leadership in Beijing, is people like Joshua Wong have no memory of British colonialism. Joshua was born in October 1996. He was less than a year old at the time of the handover. And even he grew up to... It, not even he. I mean, his generation grew up to 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 dislike and to protest and to protest much more militantly against the the communist Chinese rule than people like Jimmy Lai and his generation, who in fact were much more moderate and were were criticized by the students for being too moderate. So, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I think it's 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 really in the balance as to how this movement will develop or if it really will be snuffed out. I happen to believe that the people of Hong Kong have as much or more resiliency as anywhere in the world. And they've shown time and time again that they will you know, stand up and fight, fight quietly or lie down and, and fight, uh, but that they will try to nurture the values of, of freedom and openness that, it, that made this city like nowhere else in the world. 
And we're also going to move on to talk a little bit about the development from 1997 up to now. But there's one, one more question I'd like to ask you about the situation now. So I think, especially from a lot of Western business, they've always looked at Hong Kong as this fascinating place where you can uh, have different economic freedoms, you can make investments, you can experiment with things, and you're well positioned geographically in a region that is dynamic and um, where it's sort of it's it's always of interest to do business there. So how's the situation for them changed? I mean, I'll 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 take it that some may be more passionate about broader freedoms than other companies than other than other investors, but still they they would all sort of rely on independent courts, the rule of law, in order to be able to make business in 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 a fashion which is you know which which just works for them. What, what's been the situation for them now when sort of the crackdown has become harder? Is are courts functioning as they did in the past for businesses? Or what happens to these economic freedoms? Are, are companies leaving? Are they staying? Yeah, look, great, great multi-billion dollar questions. Uh, I think that China bet that it could impose the national security law and kind of wall off that part of the legal system and the administrative system. And there were pro-Beijing people who immediately before the national security law was imposed, and it was imposed, there was no consultation, even the Hong Kong leader hadn't seen it until a few hours before it was promulgated. But there were pro-Beijing people who said, oh, it's just going to affect a very, very few number of people in Hong Kong. And, you know, look, that bet you know, it's it's a reasonable one. I mean, business people, uh, you know, work with authoritarian, work with hard regimes everywhere. And uh, I don't know if, if uh, Hong Kong would have survived as a, you know, robust international business center, especially an international financial center. But it's, it's hard to dislodge a financial center that's on the scale of New York and London, as Hong Kong is in many, many, many uh, regards. But I think that the pandemic has uh, really thrown a lot of this into into question because business could, you know, suck up the politics. And, and uh, you know, I think Wall Street in particular was used and is used very skillfully by um, by Beijing to, um, you know, ensure that, that things don't deteriorate too, too much between Beijing and Washington. Wall Street was given little carrots in terms of, you know, ability to own all of an asset management company, for example. But. What's different now is that the pandemic, two years into this, uh, the lockdown and the, the restrictions in Hong Kong are making it impossible for companies to function, to use Hong Kong as a, as a regional center. If you can't travel, how can Hong Kong be your regional base? And so we're seeing companies in, uh, in recent weeks um, you know, publicly talk about uh, moving out, out of Hong Kong. So Pernod Ricard, Pernod Ricard uh, just uh, has asked executives to relocate outside of Hong Kong. Even the Wall Street banks are quietly shifting people to Singapore, to Tokyo. The head of the Mandarin Oriental said his staff should just work out of Hong Kong for as long as they can, the senior staff. I mean, Mandarin Oriental is headquartered in Hong Kong, you know, controlled by the Jardines Group, which was one of the kind of founders of Hong Kong and the instigator of the Opium War, I might add, back in the 1840s. So I, I think that people are really rethinking whether or not Hong Kong, the combination of the politics and the pandemic, if Hong Kong is really going to be a good place to do business. I do want to say on the courts, 
the courts have by and large kept the politics and uh, the kind of more commercial and economic disputes separate. But I think people wonder how long that's going to last and uh, you know, how good are the audited financials of companies going to be? I mean, what is the governance really going to look like? We're seeing increasing attempts to restrict mm. the flow of information uh, mm. in Hong Kong. And um, so uh, uh, I just I just don't know if Hong Kong is really going to be able to uh, survive uh, as a as the kind of international business center it's been for decades. All right, so let's step back in history um, and look at how the situation for freedom in Hong Kong developed um, after the handover in 1997. I think, I mean, this history forms a good part of your book and you give not just a fascinating account of what happened, but you also reconsider some of your own views about what was going on back then. Now, of course, with the benefit of knowing how ugly the situation was going to become. In 1997, at the time of the handover, we were told that China would follow the model of one country, two systems. And I think I speak for many when I say that we believe that this accommodation actually could work. The uniqueness of Hong Kong was going to remain. Hong Kong would keep its basic law, its constitution, and its freedoms. And Hong Kongers were ultimately going to be allowed to choose their own government in a democratic election, something which they had not been allowed to do during British rule. So what changed from 1997, and when did it start to change? It's a great question. I, and I, I think that China perhaps didn't understand Hong Kong as fully as uh, we thought that it did. And uh, China did promise elections. And 10 years after the handover, we were still in 2007, um, Hong Kongers were told, uh, it wasn't really codified, but we were told that 10 years later, we would have free universal suffrage uh, elections for essentially the mayor and the city council. No big deal, but in the Chinese context, a big deal. Now, this was promised in the basic law. Universal suffrage was promised in the basic law. There was no specific timetable, but again and again, the promise, the expectation, the statements were, it would be in 2007. In retrospect, it's pretty clear that China thought by 2007 it would actually control uh, Hong Kong, that the Hong Kongers would be welcoming the return to the motherland. They'd be embracing kind of parties that were uh, friendly to Beijing, if not, you know, the Communist Party itself, which remains an underground organization in Hong Kong, interestingly. Um, but that didn't happen because you had people, whether they were Jimmy Lai or uh, obviously Joshua Wong was was only 10 years old then. but. Uh, although he did become an activist uh, uh, just two or three years later at a very young age, you had, you had people from 10 to, you know, in their 80s who actually did not want Beijing's vision of the world. They actually wanted freedom. They wanted democracy. Sure, they were happy to go back to Hong Kong, uh, happy to go back to China. Uh, you know, they felt proud as Chinese. It was a good thing that, you know, colonialism had ended, but they didn't want their freedom to end. And whether China really didn't understand that's the way it was going to work out, or they just never would have accepted it, I, I don't know. So, I mean, the seeds were there from the beginning that China wanted more control than Hong Kong uh, people were willing to surrender. I mean, in 2003, something like a half a million people came out in the street against uh, legislation that would have was well, a precursor to the national security law that we just had imposed on us. Um, but then I think with the rule of Xi Jinping beginning in uh, 2012, 
things took a dramatic turn for the worst. And uh, in 2014, there was the Umbrella Movement, uh, which saw the occupation, the takeover of downtown Hong Kong, of the Central Business District, for 79 days by Joshua Wong and these, these young uh, uh, students, for the most part. Uh, people like Jimmy Lai and the older generation were completely flat-footed, completely left behind by this, this uprising, really. But you had a whole new generation of Hong Kongers who said, wait a minute, China, you promised us these freedoms. Where are these freedoms? And uh, I think things simmered along more or less beneath the surface between 2014 and 2019. Uh, and people were increasingly frustrated in Beijing for its part, under Xi Jinping, was in no mood for any kind of perestroika, any kind of accommodation, even any negotiations. This is another thing to remember. In any democratic society, if you have two million people come out on the streets, even in a big country, but two million people out of seven and a half million people come out in the streets, well, I mean, most governments would fall, but at the very least, they would negotiate. Even an authoritarian government like South Korea, where I was in 1987, when it was run by a general and he was trying to put his hand-picked successor, another general, in power, people came out in the streets, the government capitulated, it agreed to direct presidential elections, and it set the road, set South Korea on the road to democracy that it's been um, pursuing for the past 35 years. And you see South Korea has become, you know, a fantastic place, and it would not have uh, had the same kind of openness and development if it hadn't become democratic. So, look, the signs, I mean, communist China, its leaders want power. They will do anything to hold on to power. And, it, and Deng Xiaoping said as much to Mar Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s when he said he was taking Hong Kong back. He said, she, Thatcher said, you don't, you don't understand Hong Kong. And she was quite prescient. And he said, we think we understand it pretty well. And she said, you can't run it. You're going to wreck this great economic city. He says, we think that we'll be able to run it just fine. But you know what? If we can't, we can't. I mean, politics is going to triumph. We are taking this place over and we'll do what we want with it. And maybe we should have paid a little more attention to what Dung told Thatcher back in the 80s. But I think this is also one of the things that comes up when, uh, when I read your book, which is that looking at it over time from 97 up till now, there is a gradual tightening of the screw. I mean, it started pretty softly you have uh, a few book publishers that you know if, if they don't disappear so at least they can't really they, they, they get knock on the doors from from different um, Chinese mainland authorities that have conversations with them you have a gradual takeover of bookstores by mainland owners and sort of soft type of authoritarianism and then sort of the screws tightens even more and uh, it's difficult to let go of the impression that this was the plan already from the start. That you know China really didn't have any intention of maintaining all these freedoms from Hong Kong. For Hong Kong, it was you know it was going to go along with some of it for a while, but gradually the screws was going to be tightened. Yeah, look, I think hi history is filled with lots of contingencies. In retrospect, that seems like that's a pretty good analysis. Uh, I don't know that every Chinese official wanted that. I don't know that they had really, they had a kind of master plan to take it over in 25 years. I mean, interestingly, we're just coming up on, on July 1st this year. We'll be exactly halfway through the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region's 50-year tenure, that 50 years that was promised uh, back when the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed and Hong Kong was uh, handed back to the Chinese. Um, I don't think there was a master plan. I think the, 
uh, China took a much harder turn. I mean, who would have imagined? I think even the people who elected Xi Jinping, that small group of people who chose him uh, 10 years ago, I don't think they knew what they were getting in for. So I think the fact that Xi Jinping was the leader and it wasn't kind of softer leader, um, and I say that uh, in quotes, uh, you know, did make it a more brutal crackdown. But whether it was Deng Xiaoping or Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao, I mean, all the leaders that China's had uh, over the last four decades, none of them were going to let Hong Kong develop in a in a way that really was free. So um, I think in retrospect, uh, we were we were naive and we were too hopeful. I mean, a lot of this was bet was. Um, predicated on the belief that as China became more prosperous, it would become more integrated into the global economy. Um, as you know, Frederick, we've talked about this, you know, we've both worked a lot in the WTO. And, you know, I was among those who thought it was really going to push reform in China economically. But beyond that, after what I'd seen in South Korea, I believed that China would open up more. And, you know, I was wrong. I mean, we were wrong. Was it inevitable? Maybe so. I don't, I don't really think anything's inevitable, but it sure has not worked out the way that we would have hoped. I think engagement was the right thing to try, but we were perhaps too naive too long. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a good a good summary of it. Of course, accepting that history is not over. We haven't sort of written the final chapter in what's going to happen in China nor in Hong Kong, so we don't we don't know how things are going to evolve, but it seems to me that so if you if you take a broader look um, and talking more about China now than Hong Kong, of course, it is difficult to maintain a high degree of economic openness with the world and political authoritarianism. And I think some of the top leadership in Beijing right now they've been ardent student about you know, of of the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, and they they know what happened there, and now they are trying to sort of pull back some of these economic freedoms because they are encroaching on, on the political power of the party and, and the leadership. And if they do that, of course, growth and economic development is not going to be as good as it has been either. So we'll, 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 we'll see. Uh, anyway, um, you made reference already during the, this conversation to the national security law, and this is something which come a little bit later. So perhaps you should talk a little bit about that because it is a significant part of the entire crackdown on, on Hong Kong. So what was the national security law and why, why was it significant? Yeah, can I just interject and just, I want to add one thing to what you said. They saw the, the, the Chinese leadership are, are very passionate devotees of students of history, uh, prime among them Xi Jinping. Yes, the leadership is haunted by the uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and they will do anything to avoid that, anything to hang on to power. But it's also important to remember that they've been emboldened by the 2008 global financial crisis and um, uh, what they see as the inevitable decline, even decadence of the of the West. And uh, they see uh, under you know their study of history they see a, a rare, a kind of once-in-a-century opportunity where the historical circumstances are uniquely well-aligned for China to, to notch up its, its, uh, its power and its presence in the world. And I think that is causing China under Xi Jinping to uh, act, and I think will continue to act, with a kind of force that verges on recklessness uh, and is really 
challenging the international order. I mean, China has gone from being more of a status quo power to uh, a disruptive rising power. And uh, we can get back to that later. Um, I'll, I'll let you see if you want to respond to that or, at all, or if we should go into this national security law. We'll come back but to that. I think it's, it's important uh, for looking beyond Hong Kong. Indeed, no, and it's, we, we'll come back to that later and talk more about China in a while. But uh, let's, let's um, stay in Hong Kong for a little longer and on the national security law. So what, what, what happened and why was it important? Yeah, uh, anyway, thanks. Thank you for indulging my uh, diversion there. But um, so the national security law was uh, something that Hong Kong was supposed to pass on its own under uh, so-called Article 23 of the Basic Law, that mini constitution that I mentioned before. Um, and Hong Kong kept dragging its feet for good reason. Um, as I mentioned in 2003, about half a million people came out in you know, the biggest post-handover demonstration uh, to protest this national security legislation. And it was one of these hot potatoes, third rail issues that no Hong Kong leader wanted to touch. And uh, after the, the um, uprising, really, or the demonstrations of 2019, uh, Beijing just said, enough is enough. And they sent down uh, a couple of very hardline uh, leaders, one of whom, uh, guys from Beijing, uh, one of whom sort of came out of semi-retirement. Uh, his main claim to fame before that had been busting up Christian churches. Uh, he's a crossbreaker, a churchbreaker. Uh, he'd been in Zhejiang province, a wealthy interior province when he'd done that. You send people like that down to Hong Kong, you know, you're going to get a certain kind of policy response. And I think that's what Xi Jinping wanted. And about five months after they came in, uh, it was announced uh, completely to the surprise, shock, even dismay of even the elite in Hong Kong, uh, that national security legislation would be imposed on Hong Kong. And there were no, there was a kind of fake consultation where a few handpicked people were invited to come across the border to Shenzhen and give their views. And, and then they came back and said everything was good and getting better. And then this national security legislation was unveiled at 11 p.m. on uh, the evening of June 30th. Uh, it seems, as I alluded to earlier, that Hong Kong's um, chief executive, um, essentially the mayor, Carrie Lam, had not even seen the legislation until earlier that day, let alone been consulted on it in any meaningful way. Uh, the uh, law took effect with immediately, so at 11, 11 o'clock on June 30th. And... Uh, it basically outlaws anything that the authorities don't like. Uh, specific charges are subversion, sedition, uh, collusion with foreign powers, which could be me and Jimmy Lai uh, talking on a, 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 an event like this, as we did, um, uh, and which the authorities really didn't like. Um, and interestingly, it, uh, China says that it has worldwide reach, anyone, anywhere. So. There could come a day, it's not yet, but there could come a day when a conversation like this would uh, land both you, Frederick, and me in a lot of trouble under the national security law. So it's, uh, it's, it's vague, it's draconian, it's, uh, it's Alice in Wonderland meets Kafka meets George Orwell. I mean, it's, it's really just anything the authorities don't like. And the uh, presumption that um, people are innocent until guilty and that they should have the right to bail is suspended under this. Uh, hence, um, people are just sitting in jail waiting. Well, there's one group of a couple score people who've been in jail for over a year. I don't even know if they have a trial date coming up. They keep moving kind of administrative proceedings back. And 
nobody goes to trial, but they're just held in jail. Quite convenient if you're a totalitarian regime. It's also an interesting uh, development there, uh, which I'd like to ask you about. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the people that were sent down from Beijing. So one of them had a sort of a previous career of, of busting up churches uh, in the mainland. And I think I also uh, noted somewhere in your book that the other guy had been leading some of the anti-corruption crackdowns under, under President Xi, uh, which of course was a pretty brutal affair. So I suppose, I mean, that became sort of a, a very strong expression of the fact that mainland China didn't care that much about Hong Kong authorities or what they wanted. But when, after the handover, was that sort of total dominance of mainland China over Hong Kong authorities? When, when that, did that start to emerge? Was it sort of right after the handover that Hong Kong authorities became basically uh, subsidiaries of Beijing? Or did it take a while before that happened? Interesting question, and I think we'll really have to see the archives to understand that um, more. So I can't give you a definitive answer now. I, I can say that it uh, it was a slow um, procedure for the most part. I, I think one of the great failings of the British, um, the departing British colonial power, is that it it prepared these great administrators, uh, people who were really good at. And it was a pretty small government, 15% maximum tax rate. Uh, I guess the government was responsible for about 17 to 20% of, of GDP. So not tiny for a city, but still pretty simple, pretty easy to administer, and a really good cadre of administrative officers, of whom Carrie um, Lam, was, was the current chief executive, was kind of best and brightest of her generation. But what became apparent is that these people ultimately needed somebody giving them orders. And they actually really, really were not used to exercising actual leadership. And uh, London had long left uh, the, the British uh, the colonial governor to um, do you know, a lot of freedom. He had a lot of latitude. And there, it was always a he. But uh, there was still somebody, the Queen's representative, this, the British Crown Colony, who was there giving the orders. And it became really apparent that none of the chief executives really knew how to run government. So they were great administrators. Um, the first one uh, was a, a businessman of kind of mixed success, uh, Tang Chi Hua, but had good contacts with the West. He had to step down uh, halfway through his second term after these, these demonstrations. Uh, the second one lasted about a term and a half. You can have, um, you can have two terms maximum, and then was put up on corruption charges, eventually acquitted. But you know, the whole the whole kind of clean government thing seemed to be going quite quickly. The third one was was reviled. A former real estate surveyor uh, uh, was reviled and only managed one term in office, um, widely hated by Hong Kong people. And then now we have Carrie Lam, who, uh, you know, it's just hanging on by the skin of her teeth and is hanging on thanks to the police and the authorities in Beijing. So she feels very beholden by them. I, I don't know if it's fair to use the, the phrase Stockholm syndrome with you, Frederick, but uh, she, I, I've, I've seen her, you know, during the summer of 2019, it was very clear she was really frightened, I think, for her well-being and felt that uh, the Chinese authorities and the Hong Kong police, who, who were quite brutal that summer, uh, really protected her. And so um, I think she, she looks to them for guidance, but it, it comes out of a longer tradition of not having real political leadership in Hong Kong. But I think the real turning point was the, appoint the appointment in early 2020 of, of these two gentlemen. And I should say, 
the, the church breaker and the, the anti-corruption fighter from uh, Shanxi, the, the coal-rich province up north. I should also say the new People's Liberation Army commander, who was appointed a couple months ago, unfortunately continues in this tradition. Uh, he was the leader of an elite and seemingly quite violent anti-commando uh, unit that hunted down um, supposed terrorists and extremists out in Xinjiang, where we know, you know, there's this incredible brutality going on. So these are the kinds of people that China, that Beijing, that Xi Jinping is sending to rule Hong Kong. Hong Kong is not, in Beijing's eyes, seen as a wonderful global financial center where people can come and go, a mixture of East and West and all these wonderful things. It's seen as a troublesome peripheral province, an area like Xinjiang or like Tibet or like Taiwan, perhaps, that needs to be beaten down, hammered into submission, brought under control, cost what it may. And I think that's, that's really ominous. I don't think we've hit bottom yet in Hong Kong. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about the future, Mark, and uh, go into more of the discussion that we started about China and its future direction. Um, and not just about China. I also like to talk to you about what do you think the responses from um, United States and Europe should be? So the, the title of your book is pretty stark and suggests that China's treatment of Hong Kong is not just about Hong Kong, uh, but that other countries where freedom prevails should be aware of Beijing's ambitions. Um, Goimin Hai, which is a citizen of my, of my mother country, Sweden, uh, was arrested in Thailand a few years ago for publishing books critical of China. He was basically kidnapped by Chinese authorities in a foreign country and he was taken to jail in China. Over the past years, uh, we've seen China becoming more aggressive against other countries. Lithuania is now at the receiving end. Um, and as in several other cases, China's punishment of Lithuania is really about Taiwan and relations with Taiwan. So what is it that China aims to do? Is it only about Taiwan or do you think they have ambitions about controlling freedom beyond Hong Kong and Taiwan? I think they have ambitions to control freedom everywhere. I don't think that they will necessarily be you know, shutting down newspapers in, in Stockholm the way they did in Hong Kong. But if they had their way, newspapers, whether they're in Stockholm or in San Francisco, would only be publishing things that uh, the Chinese want, that they would be able to draw red lines around coverage of Taiwan or Tibet or anything else that they want in the future. I mean, I really think that's their ambition. Look, they're a long way from it. But if you look at how far they've come in the last couple of years, uh, Gui Min Hai was uh, abducted from uh, the beachside uh, Thai town of Pattaya, where he had an apartment in 2015. He just appeared mysteriously. I mean, he, he's abducted. We've seen the video footage of the guy who, who did it outside, of, you know, in the, the complex's parking lot. And Gui Min Hai just appeared some months later in China, said he'd come back voluntarily, that he, he wanted to deal with a, a traffic accident that he'd been involved in some years earlier. A lot of toing and froing. He was released. He was with a Swedish diplomat at one point, but he wasn't really released because he was he was brought back again, um, tried, forced to publicly renounce his Swedish citizenship. And uh, as you know, when Swedish journalists try to get um, comments from the Chinese ambassador to Stockholm or other people about this, they're bullied. They're they're told basically, you know, quite rude things that you know 
China's a heavyweight boxer that's like sort of beating up on what it's expected to do. It's beating up on a little little guy, a little boxer. I mean, just crazy things for the press in Sweden, just doing what it what it does is a free press, which is to try to uh, expose abuses, to try to look after uh, people who've been wrongfully imprisoned. I think Gui Minhai's case, it's it's one of you know dozens, scores, hundreds like this. We could we could go on for hours about the the sorts of things that China has done abroad with Chinese or people that it regards as Chinese, even if they hold foreign citizenship um, in, in terms of incarceration and bringing them back to, uh, to China. I mean, there's a story, very interesting story in today's Financial Times about China's reach under Xi Jinping and its, uh, its various programs. Fox Hunt is one of them. The US FBI director has talked about this to bring back Chinese that it, that it wants. Now, usually these, it's a very interesting case because conundrum, I guess, for foreign governments, because often these people are, are you know, potentially uh, corrupt officials who, in fact, should pay, should face uh, a reckoning. But, you know, it's not clear, you know, if all of them are or if they really should face that reckoning back in China where there's there's no real due process. So I, I think we're seeing the, the reach of, of China really extend. I and mean, we can go into, you know, kind of different issues. But for right now, it's mostly Taiwan-related issues, and it's Chinese citizens abroad who, who China wants to silence or, or you know, bring back for its own reasons, often corruption, but political ones as well. But do you think that panoply of issues are going to be extended? So China's going to become sort of more sensitive about other points as well? So you know, that Stockholm journalist or, or that San Francisco journalist can't sort of voice criticism against something which you know, to, at least today, would look to be more innocent from the viewpoint of Beijing. Look, I, 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 I'm a historian. I really hate to, to predict the future, but the signs certainly point in, in that direction. And, uh, I, you know, I should add, I mean, what we're seeing now is, is you know, incredible uh, meddling in uh, political affairs in, uh, well, I would pick, I'd single out the UK and Australia, but we could, there are other um, issues. You mentioned Lithuania, but for example, um, I was talking to a, uh, a Hong Kong activist in London a few weeks, a few months ago, and uh, he, w- he showed me a, an anti-Chinese racism, um, anti-Asian racism uh, poster for a, a rally that was coming up. And he, he pointed out all the telltale signs that this was part of the Communist United Front, uh, which is it's kind of works with the Communist Party, but underground, doesn't have official links with the party. and is very, very active abroad. He said, this is, you know, this is a pro-Chinese Communist Party rally under the guise of anti-Asian racism. And uh, a few days later, I was back in the States, uh, actually a couple of weeks later, uh, and I saw reports of that rally. Some Hong Kong demonstrators had come and asked for democracy in Hong Kong. They were beaten up by mainland Chinese thugs. I mean, this has had an anti-Asian hate rally, right? You know, mm-hmm. the you know, there. You know, irony is not a strong suit of the the, the Chinese Communist Party. But um, I think we're we're seeing disquieting, disturbing signs. You know, you know, really throughout the world. In Africa, we've seen uh, Chinese telecoms companies uh, work with corrupt local elites to sell overpriced uh, internet and telecom equipment, with the elites presumably pocketing um, some of the proceeds. And then that very same equipment is used by the Chinese and by the local government. For surveillance uh, against the local population. So, you know, I think we're just we're seeing these kind of signs 
these kinds of incidents popping up throughout the world. And uh, I don't think that once China gets Taiwan back, if it gets it back, and I think that's still a really big if, that its behavior would modulate. I think, you know, as we've seen with totalitarians like Hitler or Stalin, there's really no stopping them. There's nothing that's really going to satisfy them because they really want domination because uh, they fear if they don't have domination that their position isn't secure and it's never secure enough. So you have to hammer down people like Jimmy Lai, hammer down the people of Hong Kong, hammer down Taiwan. I mean, there's there's really no no stopping them. And you know, we could look at talk about Bhutan where they've been very aggressive. India where we've had the first uh, conflict deaths between uh, China and India in decades. Um, the list goes on and on, and it seems to be expanding, Frederick. I mean, the last couple of years have not shown a more secure Xi Jinping, a more secure China. It, instead, it's shown a more aggressive one. Indeed. And as you say, I mean, this is the usually the fate with most autocrats and dictators, which is that they are afraid of, they're afraid of their own people. So they have to engineer authoritarian control, not just domestically, but also with others in order to avoid seeing an erosion of their political power. I mean, one reason why I ask is, I mean, to take a couple of examples that I've, I've noticed uh, lately. So again, I mean, I don't want to sort of wear my Swedish colors too much, but H&M um, uh, had a difficult period in China, to put it mildly, after it, uh, it didn't make sort of a public announcement. It didn't take a conflict with Beijing, but it it, it basically stopped using uh, companies and cotton from uh, Xinjiang in the production of the clothes. And of course, that led to enormous reactions, obviously engineered by Beijing, but uh, pretending to be sort of um, bottom-up reactions by, by Chinese people that were angry about someone having the disrespect of, of challenging Chinese policies. I know uh, a lot of business people in Europe um, that competes in China, uh, but feel compelled to be the voice of, China, of Chinese businesses in Europe right now because they know if they if they take positions which are sort of normal business lobbying decisions, which aren't friendly to, friendly towards China, they're going to find almost immediately that their markets are going to be reduced significantly, and it's going to cost them quite a lot to do that. So. Using these tools of, of different types of economic coercion, I think that's that's a pretty strong trend right now where China's reach is just getting longer and longer, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, I think that's, that uh, sort of brings me back to the question I didn't really answer earlier about the U.S. and Europe. Um, look, there's not an easy answer. And unlike the Soviet Union, which was relatively unintegrated into the global the kind of uh, economy, China is like really at the heart of the global economy. It's uh, it's you know close to twenty trillion dollar uh, economy. It's the second biggest uh, after the U.S. And we're not just going to walk away. We're not going to have a total decoupling. But I, I do think that I hope one of the things that, that comes out of the the events and perhaps of the work that I do is that we start having a, a more realistic and honest conversation about what our dependence on China means because. One of the lessons of the pandemic, of course, is is the fragility of the of supply chains and the extent to which our wonderful global world, um, you know, can can be very fragile when things don't work out well. And I'm not really sure we're taking. I think that's a 
you know, a general issue that the pandemic has brought to the fore, but I think it's a very specific one with relation to, to China. When China wanted um, PPE, protective material, uh, at the beginning of the um, pandemic, it, uh, it scoured the world. Uh, and my, my former colleague and friend Sheridan Prasso has written about this for Bloomberg Businessweek. Amazing use of the United Front, this, this kind of you know, linked uh, organization to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, had people in you know, every country that they could just scooping up masks and sanitizer and supplies off uh, shelves before anybody really knew what was happening. Sent it back to China, did all this very secretly. And then when things got a little better and China was able to start producing the masks and the sanitizer and other protective equipment, and it was starting to send it to the rest of the world, you know, it wanted fealty from, the, from its recipient countries. So it takes very quietly and surreptitiously, and then it wants wants the world to, to pay homage to it, to, you know, sing the Chinese national anthem, to, you know, have people on balconies in Italy, you know, shouting thanks. And, you know, it's all very manufactured and made up. But I mean, it's how China sees the world. And I think we take the, the, the bigger lesson way beyond the pandemic is that China took away the lesson. The world's pretty dependent on us. Let's look at ways we can make the world more dependent, that we'll have choke points, whether it's in rare earths or in specific components, that will make it impossible for the very, very difficult, will really slow down the global economy if they don't do what we want. So I think we're, re we're looking at, uh, we're moving into a more economic side of the, the geo strategy. And I, I think it's one that I hope ESIP and, and other organizations uh, can, can take a look at because we are so bound up with China we're so vulnerable. They are. Uh, they take a, a more strategic look at these issues, and perhaps they can act more quickly and forcefully and with a whole of government approach than we've been able to do um, in open societies. And again, I think this gets back to this decision that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party have made that the historical, the alignment of historical forces are uniquely well suited for China to. They would say reclaim its rightful place in the world. I think. Those of us who, who believe and live in open societies would look at it as, as them imposing their authoritarian values on the entire world. So let's end by talking a little bit about Hong Kong again and what Europe and America can do there and perhaps also to support um, uh, your organization, uh, the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. So you mentioned previously that the UK offered um, opportunities for Hong Kongers to basically move to the UK and, and sort of more people than I think most people assumed that were actually doing it as well, leaving Hong Kong to move to the UK. I noticed the other day that there was a talk in, in Britain as well about British judges on Hong Kong courts and that this needs to stop. What, what else is this that Western governments can do right now to help the sort of not just your organization, but the process of trying to uh, protect freedoms in Hong Kong, if if it's at all possible to achieve anything at this point? Yeah, well, I think it, uh, thanks. I mean, it's a great question. Our organization doesn't matter. All that matters really are the people in prison in Hong Kong and the, the people who you know, are trying to enjoy freedom in, in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong people are what, what matters. I think the first thing is just keeping a spotlight. You know, and again, that's why I think we appreciate opportunities like this to uh, reach an, an audience and remind them that uh, what's going on in Hong Kong, obviously with the events in Ukraine and before that Afghanistan, I mean, the spotlight of the world is, you know, sort of tends to flit from one crisis to the next. 
and you know, as bad as things are as they are in Hong Kong, I mean, they're worse in Xinjiang, you know, where we have hundreds of thousands, probably a million or more people have gone through these supposed re-education centers, which, you know, as I said, it's the largest civilian internment since the Nazi period. And, and the world needs to hold China to account. Easy to say, nice phrase, what does it actually mean? As I say, I think that we need to use every legal method that we can to hold China to account for, you know, its abrogation of the United Nations um, Declaration on Human Rights, the Sino-British uh, Treaty of 1986 uh, that um, set up, uh, sorry, 1984, which um, you know laid the groundwork for for the handover for all of its abrogations of international human rights. China says. It defines human rights. Human rights is what the Chinese Communist Party uh, says is good for the country and that different places have different definitions of human rights. That's nonsense. We have a universal declaration of human rights. China signed that. China needs to live up to that. Now, if it won't, I think the, then the hard work begins. And this is where I think we need to look at more um, sweeping sanctions against uh, Hong Kong officials and, and others who are enabling um, this what I call law, what we call lawfare, which is using the appearance of rule of law to achieve predetermined political ends. In other words, not to have give people a fair shake in, in court. Um, and I think we really need to look in a hard, long-term, strategic way about our economic dependence on China. Because as long as we're dependent on China, our room for maneuver is limited. And China has shown that just as you know, the Strait of Hormuz was a choke point for for oil during particular wars, China is going to use its its production of uh, key components as a choke point as we move into a more confrontational phase. And by the way, we are moving into a more confrontational phase. I mean, China, Xi Jinping for the first time has set a deadline for um, uh, taking back Taiwan by 2049. I think the next the next few years, the next decade is going to be very dicey. And uh, I think the world needs to decide, is, is it going to let Taiwan go the way of Austria under Hitler with the Anschluss, the way of Czechoslovakia? I think the answer is no. But we need to look at what our tools are so that China doesn't put us in a position where we have no leverage. All right. Thank you so very much, Mark. I mean, this has been a sad but fascinating discussion. I mean, sad because we're talking about a development which is well, it's, it's just very sad. I mean, Hong Kong has re represented so much about hope, aspirations, and freedom over the past couple of decades. And it's it's almost heartbreaking to see the development it has been taken uh, over the past five to ten years, perhaps even longer. You have written a great book. I urge everyone to go and buy a copy. Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plan to End Freedom Everywhere. It's, I mean, it, it shows you're a very good journalist because it's a very easy read. You managed to cover a lot of history, uh, a lot of contemporary developments in, in one book. So it's, it's really a great read. So thank you so much, Mark. It's been lovely to see you again and to talk to you. Well, thank you, Frederick. And as you said, history is not over. We're, we're still in the middle of this. We in open societies have a lot we can do. And let's just, let's just stay focused and uh, play for the play for the long game. And uh, thanks for the opportunity, Frederick. Uh, you're a great interlocutor and uh, look forward to seeing you again in person. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you also to all of you that have listened. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.